How's everybody doing? It's great to see all of you. It's been a while. Uh, people have been asking me, they've been saying, so Bob, how was your vacation? Um, just to let you know, I've had three days off in the last four weeks. So I, if that's a vacation, I don't even want to know what work looks like. Um, I was at a conference um, the, the four or five days on, uh, I can't even think, it was so far, it feels like so long ago, um, Veterans Day weekend. Then um, after uh, I was in Baltimore, flew home from Baltimore. Uh, the next day I flew to Boston, uh, consulted with the church in Connecticut, then worked with some churches, and let's see if I get this right while I was there, in Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Connecticut, uh, New York, and New Jersey. Um, and then, um, oh, hey, all right, New England representing. Um, and then got home, uh, or, or then, then spoke at a church in, uh, in Connecticut last Sunday, and then flew home and um, apparently caught something. Because, you know, your body doesn't like it when you leave somewhere. Like I left Boston on Monday, and it was 25 degrees using the ice scraper to scrape the ice off of the windshield of the rental car. And then I flew home, and it was 80. And uh, my, my body didn't appreciate that very much. So, um, But here's the thing that's so interesting. Uh, last Sunday, I was speaking at this church in Connecticut. And afterwards, um, they had this area for fellowship and all this. So some people were getting, getting together, drinking coffee, donuts, all that kind of stuff. And um, I was there. It was after the service, and I was there playing with my kids when all of a sudden... I saw this little mouse there in, in the church. This little mouse was, was running across um, this, this, this area. And so um, I tell my kids, I say, you know, guys, look, there's a little mouse. And my kids get so excited to see the mouse, they run over, they start chasing the mouse. And uh, so they start running around chasing the mouse. They're yelling and screaming because they're so excited to see the mouse. My son is trying to get as close as he can to the mouse, try to grab the mouse and make it its personal pet. And... Um, so this lady that's there in the church, she, she walks up to us and, and she says, what's, what's, what's all the excitement about? And I said, um, I said, well, there's, there's this little mouse. And she says, oh, no, don't tell me that. I, and she starts walking back. She says, I am deathly afraid of mice. And I said, well, then I'm sorry to be the one to tell you, but as you've been walking back, the mouse is now on your shoe. And because uh, the mouse was literally on the heel of her shoe. And she let out a scream. At that moment, that like rivaled something that you'd see out of the movie Psycho, like the shower scene in Psycho. <laughs> you know, uh, it was pretty awesome, actually. Um, and, uh, and, and I'm telling you that this, now, after this whole thing, the mouse got freaked out that after the scream and, and ran under the Coke machine, and, uh, which I thought was interesting. Um, but this, is, this scene, I th to me, was so funny and so picturesque of what happens to us. This lady is like 50 times larger. I mean, she's like a normal-sized woman. And she's like 50 times larger, most of us. A lot larger than a little mouse, right? A little, like, two-inch mouse. And yet somehow, this little mouse grips many of us with fear. When this is all it takes, and the mouse goes to wherever mice go in their afterlife, right? And that's all. But now we're, like, deathly afraid, right? And, and here's the thing that, 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 that happens. But she screams like this little mouse has like an axe or something and is like chasing her when it doesn't and, and the thing that's odd is that none of the kids because once my kids got excited other kids got excited and there was like 10 kids chasing this mouse around this little area and only the women and the girly men were afraid of the mouse it's the weirdest thing and so and it, and it got me thinking about something 
that some responses in life are learned. Some responses in life are learned. Some things that we're afraid of, we actually weren't born afraid of. Someone told us that we should be afraid of them, and now we're afraid of them, not because we were afraid of them, but because someone told us that we should be afraid of them. And so somewhere between childhood and adulthood, our view got changed. In the same way, can I, can I tell you this? <coughs> Pardon me. When you come to know Jesus, in the beginning, you really believe that God can do anything. And in fact, anytime there's a problem or a difficulty, there is just one response that you have as a young Christian, and that is, I need to go to God because I know that God is bigger than this problem, bigger than this circumstance, bigger than this situation, and if I can just go to Him, I know that He's going to create the way, create the solution, fix the problem, and He's the one that's going to do it. But somewhere along the line, somewhere between childhood and the faith and quote-unquote adulthood in the faith, we get sophisticated. And we start to think that once was an issue, what once was an issue to take to God in prayer now becomes something that we can handle ourselves. And we begin to believe that we're now the ones who can handle everything, even though we're the ones who have finite resources and God is the one who has infinite resources. Because when you bring something to God rather than trying to handle it yourself, you now open yourselves up to we open ourselves up to the infinite resources that God has available to us. The ability to solve the problem becomes much greater of a degree if we would take it to God rather than keep it ourselves. In the notes that we gave you, there's a familiar passage in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, that says that with man this is impossible, but not with God. With God all things are possible. Now, I tell you all of this because the guy that we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks, this guy, Samson, this guy that had been given amazing strength by God, who had been made this Nazarite vow, <clears throat> this covenant that he had been given, that he had been entered into with God, even with all of that, this special relationship that he has with God, the strength given to him by God, he has now fallen into this same trap as well. He's fallen into the same issue. He's been given a gift by God so that he could glorify God with his gift of incredible strength. But instead, Samson uses his incredible strength to satisfy his own desires. When he runs into a problem or a difficulty, he doesn't say this is an issue for God to deal with. God, how do you want me to respond to it? Instead, he sees every problem as an issue that his strength has to deal with. He's been given godly parents. He's been given a supernatural calling from God. He's been given a mission from God to judge Israel but he's allowing his life to unravel. And what we see is a snapshot in his life of how far he is from God. We see a snapshot in his life that he sees the solution to every problem as just the need for him to use the strength that he's been given. And there's just one thing that I want to teach you in this story in the time that we have together, and then we're going to celebrate communion together and reconnect ourselves with God. And if we've been trying to figure it out in our own strength. We're going to come back to the cross. We're going to come back to Jesus. But the one thing that I want to share with you, that if you would apply it to your life, you would see God work on your behalf in ways that you never dreamed possible. This one biblical truth, if you would just apply it, grab hold of it, you wouldn't be stressed out all the time about how you're going to figure everything out. If you grab hold of this principle, this, this, this truth, listen, you would get into the flow of what God is doing. And your life would no longer be about asking God to bless what you're doing. Instead, you would be jumping in to what God is already blessing. 
And here's the principle, very simple. Maybe you want to write it down somewhere in your notes. But it's surrendering to God brings the blessing of God. Surrendering to God brings the blessing of God. Surrendering to God brings the blessing of God. You see, when we talk about surrender, I'm not talking about surrender in in the military sense of like, hey, I give up. I'm talking about surrender when we say, I'm going to surrender my own will, my own way, and instead of going this way, I'm going to turn and instead start going God's way. And the same energy and effort that I was pushing for my own will, I'm now going to turn that, and instead I'm going to push for what it is that God wants me to do. It's about trusting God above all that you see, all that you think, all that you feel, and being willing to let God move in your life as you surrender control. This is the thing that Samson struggles with, the the thing that he cannot do. And my friends, we have to observe this. We have to watch this. We have to see this. Because if we don't, we will find our lives unraveling the same way that Samson's life unraveled. Judges chapter 15 is where we're going to be. We're going to start in verse 1. If you want to follow along with me. It says, after a while, in the time of the wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. And he said, let me go into my wife, into her room. But her father would not permit him to go in. Her father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. And then Samson went and caught 300 foxes and he took torches and turned the foxes tail to tail and put the torch between the pair, each pair of tails. And he set the torch on fire and let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and burned up both the shocks and the standing grain as well as the vineyards and the olives. Now if you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things that I want to share with you this morning about surrender. That's so important for you as it's so important for me, as it's so important that Samson needs to understand this, but he just doesn't get it. And here's the first thing that I want you to know. And that is that surrendering your relationships to God brings God's favor. Surrendering your relationships to God brings God's favor. You see, as I mentioned, my wife and I, our family, we were in Boston last week, and we were going somewhere, and we get on the highway. And my wife reminds me of this story. She says, remember the last time we were driving on this highway? And I said, oh, I remember it well. You see, the last time that we were in Boston for Thanksgiving... We uh, were going to, the day after Thanksgiving, we went to visit some friends. And we decided to take this road that was kind of off the beaten path. And my wife says to me, "Um, are you sure you're going the right way? Do you want me to get the GPS? And I mean, I grew up in Boston. And so I'm like, I'm like, woman, this is my city. Don't tell me about G. I don't know GPS. I know where this, I know where I'm going. I grew up in this town. And so I'm, you know, and she says, okay. Well, we start driving like half an hour later, I'm still looking for the road that we're supposed to be on. And then a few minutes later, I see a sign. It says, Welcome to New Hampshire. And um, it was like I was going in the exact opposite direction that I was supposed to go. And um, now here's the weird part of that. <clears throat> and I don't even know if I've ever told my wife this. Now, the weird part of this is that she says, Hey, um, our friends don't live in New Hampshire. And I said, and In this, my man brain 
was trying to figure out and justify some way to actually be in New Hampshire. And I'm thinking, maybe I should tell her that I wanted to stop in New Hampshire to buy them a gift. Or something, you know, trying to come up with something like, oh, no, no, this is really the way I wanted to go. Why? Because surrendering isn't easy. Admitting that you're wrong isn't easy. Admitting that you're going the wrong way isn't easy. But it's totally necessary if you want God's favor and if you want God's blessing. Samson is a mess because he refuses to surrender to God and listen to anyone. Now, let me just give you, some of you were here last week, and Pastor Mark did a great job sharing with you Judges chapter 14 and talking to us about this woman that he went to go see just now, the woman at Timnah that he wanted to marry. Now, let me, if you weren't, let me just give you a couple of verses to catch you up to speed. <clears throat> this is in Judges chapter 14, verse 1. It says, Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. And when he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. And his father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among our people that is someone who's Jewish? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She is the right one for me. Samson will not surrender his relationships to God, and that is why he invites the mess that he's in. I mean, think about this. Many times we come to know Jesus, and and we do the very same thing that Samson does. We come to know Jesus, and we say, Jesus, here's the deal. You take care of the salvation part, because I can't handle that part. You deal with the salvation stuff, and I'll take care of the rest. You know, the whole, like, going to heaven, forgiveness of sins, you handle that. But when it comes to my relationships, my career, my money, all that stuff, I'm going to go ahead and take care of that and do what I think is best. And listen, can I just tell you this? Do you know why God's commands are in the Bible? Do you know that God's commands aren't for him? Do you know God's doing just fine? Like whether we obey him or not, God's still doing okay. He still wakes up on the right side of bed. You know, God's commands aren't there for him. God's commands are there for us because God wants us to live the best life possible. And because of that, he's saying, hey, don't do that. You're going to hurt yourself if you do that. You're going to just, it's going to cause you so much pain if you do this. Instead, do this, and it might seem a little odd. It it might not even make sense, but if I could just encourage you, just go this way, God is saying to us. It's going to be so much better. You're going to invite my favor into your life, God would say. You're going to invite my blessing into your life if you just go the way that I'm asking you to go. Because if you go this other way, this way that might seem right to you at the moment, I can't bless that. I can't invite my favor into that because it's going to be a mess. You see, what does Samson need to know? His parents are telling him, they're saying, listen, Samson, please. You're going to go to the Philistines, our arch enemies? They're called uncircumcised Philistines. You know why they're called that? Um, Because they were not, because circumcision was the covenant. It meant that you entered into a covenant with the God of Israel. And he's saying, these people are not part of the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Can't you just find someone that believes in the same God that we believe, that walks with our God the way that we walk? And he's saying, no, this is the right woman for me. And because he won't surrender his relationships to God, God says, I'm sorry, I can't bless this. The Bible says this in your notes. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It says, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there with Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? 
Listen, in this verse, the story of Samson illustrates that, that God is telling Christians not to date, not to marry people who aren't Christians. Why? Because you'll end up compromising your convictions the very same way that Samson compromised his convictions. Because every time it happens, it ends poorly. <coughs> Pardon me. <clears throat> a guy or girl will see someone that they think is cute, and then they will start dating them, and then they'll start praying, God, please make them a Christian because they're cute. Because it's easier to be cute and become a Christian than be a Christian and become cute. Right? That's usually the way it works. And, and so what we do is we compromise for the sake of the relationship and the reason that we do this. And listen, the reason we do it is because we've never thought it through to its logical conclusion. And you say, well, what if I end up marrying this person? Then what happens? What if we end up having kids? Then what happens? And so we compromise our faith with, to be with someone hoping that they will change. And listen... And the one who's changed is us, to be with that person. And have you ever thought that they might be thinking the same thing? Maybe what they're thinking is, yeah, I'm just waiting for them to change and get over this whole Jesus thing so we can live a normal life. It doesn't work. And we compromise because we don't believe that doing things God's way will work out the way that we hoped that it would. Because waiting for God to bring someone is hard, and I will readily admit that. But ending up with the wrong person because you compromised your convictions is even worse. So Samson marries this girl, as you saw in chapter 14 last week. He never consummates his marriage, and then he leaves. He comes back, and he brings a goat. Now, I'm guessing that she would have preferred flowers, but he decides to bring her a goat because, and I would encourage you not to try that with your wife. Honey, sorry, I've been gone. Here's a goat. Um, and, and so... But his, he learns from his father-in-law saying, I'm sorry, I gave her to somebody else. In fact, it's the same word that's used in the last chapter for his best man. So it's like, I'm sorry, you left. I didn't think you liked her, so I just gave her to the next guy in line in, in your marriage party. So I just gave her to the best man, and he seemed pretty open to marrying her. So we just thought that that would kind of work out. And so, and, and, and instead of, and this is, the pro, this is the deal. He comes back. Now, could this be God that's sparing him? That God allows this father-in-law to say maybe he hated her and however that works. <clears throat> and then he says, here's the thing. Maybe God is trying to save him from a world of hurt, but he can't surrender. He can't admit that he was wrong. And say maybe this whole relationship thing wasn't the right idea. And so instead he decides to do what he always does. Because with Samson, the default is fighting. The default is never surrendering to God. It's always finding the blame in someone else and fighting against them. And so what he does is he catches 300 foxes. Now understand, catching one fox is a feat in and of itself because these are very, very fast animals. He catches 300. He ties their tails together, puts a torch in between the two, lights the torch, and sets them off in the fields of the Philistines. And as they're running wildly to try to untangle themselves, they end up setting on fire all of their fields and destroying all of their crops. But see, this is where the problem keeps escalating. And this is what pride does. He can't walk away thinking someone else was right because if, you're, if you notice, um, if, if you look here, it says that not only what, what, this, what happens here is that he actually, in verse 6, we want to look at it in a second, it says, so the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. When the, when the Philistines see what Samson had done, they blame the father-in-law and the girl who had been 
Samson's wife, because they had never consummated their marriage, they, the Philistines blamed them. And so as Samson had burned them, now burned the Philistines, now the Philistines burn these people, this, this family. You see, relationships never work if you're solely focused on being right. And the reason that we don't surrender in our relationships, and this is what happens with couples. Couples just won't surrender and say, you know what, you're right. I'm sorry. Because some, some reason, somehow we believe that people won't respect us if we admit that we're wrong. And you know that just the opposite is true? That if you admit that you're wrong and exhibit some humility, those that we're closest to will respect us the most. But it takes surrendering to God for that to happen. <clears throat> Look what else happens. Verse 6. <clears throat> Verse 6, it says, Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, Since you would do such a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you, and after that I will cease. And so he attacked them, hip and thigh, with a great slaughter, and went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock at Edom. And now the Philistines went up and encamped at Judah and deployed themselves against Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? And they answered, We have come up to arrest Samson to do to him as he has done to us. And then the 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock at Edom and said to Samson, Do you know that the Philistines rule over us? Why have you done this to us? And, they said to, and he said to them, They did this to me, and so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to arrest you that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. And then Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. And they spoke to him. They said, No, but we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hand. But surely we will not kill you. And so they brought him <clears throat> with two new they brought him with two new ropes. And they brought him from the rock. Verse 14. And when he had come to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. And then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire. And his bonds broke uh, from his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and reached out his hand and took it and killed a thousand men with it. And then Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. And so it was when he had finished speaking that he threw the jawbone from his hand and he called the place Ramah Lehi. Now if you pause there and give me your attention. The first thing that we mention is that surrendering your gifts to God brings God's... Uh, surrendering, uh, surrendering your relationships to God brings God's favor. The second thing is surrendering your gifts to God brings God's perspective. It brings God's perspective. While we were in Boston, we went to Target. One day we needed to pick up a few things. And um, <coughs> Mia, my daughter, who's almost four, saw this little Sleeping Beauty Barbie doll. And she really wanted it. And they actually had it on clearance. It was only five bucks. And so we put it in the cart without her realizing. And uh, we wanted to give it to her as a gift because she had been a really good girl on the airplane. And um, so we got back to my sister's house where we were staying and, uh, you know, we gave it to her, and, um, and so she was so excited, and she was, like, hugging the box, and she wanted me to open it, and so I give it to her, and she says, oh, Poppy, thank you, I've wanted this for hours now, 
you know, and that those because you know that's like an eternity for her. And she says, and then I open it, and she's like dancing around with the Sleeping Beauty Barbie, and she says, Bobby, Sleeping Beauty has made this the best Thanksgiving ever. And I'm thinking, I have made this the best Thanksgiving ever by buying Sleeping Beauty. Last I could tell, Sleeping Beauty did not come to you. She did not walk here from Target. I bought Sleeping Beauty. She did not get that. But let me tell you, this is the same thing that happens. And, and, we, and, and see, without an understanding of the original language, we read it and we say, wow, it's cool. He finds a jawbone. He wipes out a thousand Philistines. That's amazing. But I want you to know what happens here. The same thing that happened to my daughter is in a similar way, the same thing that happens to us and the same thing that happened to Samson. He wipes the thousand Philistines out with the jawbone of a donkey. I have a picture here of a jawbone of a, of a donkey. This is what it is. I mean, it kind of looks like a boomerang slash sickle. I mean, it could be a pretty amazing thing. But here's the crazy part. The crazy part is, is that after Samson gets done wiping out a thousand Philistines, he throws the, the, the jawbone on the ground and he calls the place Ramath Lehi, which means this, jawbone height. I mean, it sounds like an upper class gated community. Jawbone Heights. That's where I live in Jawbone Heights. I mean, it's great. We have a security guard and everything. And uh, because the reason he calls it that is because he believes that the jawbone is the secret of his victory. And we're going to talk about this issue next week when the story of Samson comes to, to, to a, a culmination. But Samson has forgotten that it's not the jawbone that gave him the victory. It's not even his strength that gave him the victory. It's not even his long hair that gave him the victory. It was God who gave him the victory. It's his connection to God, his relationship with God that gave him the victory. See, the Bible tells us this. It says, do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And it's easy for us to forget that God is the source of our victories, that God is the source of our blessings in life. It happens at Christmas. <clears throat> we say that Jesus is the reason for the season, but the season somehow tends to crowd the reason out sometimes. And we get so busy with the gifts and the parties and the tree and the lights and all of this that we forget the whole reason as to why it is that we're celebrating. And we start creating these jawbones in our lives thinking that that's just that's the reason. But the jawbone is just the instrument that God used to bring you the victory. You see, and here, here's how it works, and it's so subtle. You have a guy, and he's involved in church, and he's growing in his faith, and God blesses him, and he buys a boat. And you know what happens? Now he starts taking that boat out every weekend. And, and, and what takes place? Well, now he's not here anymore because he's out on the boat. And, and, and the thing that God blessed him with now becomes the hindrance in his life. And, and what, what, what happened? He created jawbone heights. That's all he did. It happens in relationships. A girl is growing in her faith. She starts dating a guy, and suddenly the relationship that, he's, that she's praying for somehow becomes a thing that starts leading her away from God. What happened? Jawbone Heights is what happened. I start seeing the thing as God, when really it's just an instrument that God was using. It happens with careers. A Christian is praying and saying, God, I want you to help me. G give me a, a great career, a great job so that I can provide for my family. And then the guy gets the job that he's been praying for, but it consumes his life. And it starts hurting his family, the very family he wanted to provide for because he's never there. It starts hurting his spiritual life because he's not reading the scriptures anymore. He's found that he's not taking time to pray anymore. He's certainly not here to grow in his faith and expand his understanding of God and get together with God's people. And what is it that he's done? He's created Jawbone Heights. 
We've let the instrument of God become God in our lives. See, Jesus would put it this way. He'd say, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. You want to know God's strategy for your life? Here's what it is. Put God first. Keep God as your focus. Put the kingdom of God first in all that you do, and then God will provide everything else that you need. Because if you don't, God has a way of changing our perspective. And that's what we see in verse 18. (coughs) Look at verse 18. Then he became, Samson, became very thirsty. So he cried out to the Lord and said, Have you given me this great deliverance by the hand of your servant? And now I shall die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised. And so God split the hollow place that is in Lehi. And water came out and he drank and his spirit returned and he revived and therefore he called its name En Hakor, which is in Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. See, here's the last thing. Surrendering your life to God brings God's peace. Surrendering your life to God brings God's peace. I want you to see what's happened. Samson has this big victory, and he thinks that he's superhuman. He says, this is, the jawbone has given me this victory. And so he renames this place Jawbone Heights. But you know what God allows him to do? Experience thirst so that he can realize that he's simply and only human. At this point in the story is the first time in Samson's life that we actually see him pray. It's the only time that we see him call out to God up to this point. Because he realizes for the first time that he cannot survive in his own strength. He realizes his own frailty and weakness before God. And so what does he do when he recognizes that as God provides water for him? He changes the name Jawbone Heights to something else. He calls it En-Hakor, which means the spring of the one who cried out. The spring of the one who cried out. What God has done is God has to remove his self-sufficiency. God has to remove his strength for him to rely on God. You see, Jesus would say it this way. Have you ever read the scriptures? The stone in which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our own eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. The option that Samson had is the option that we all have. You see, we can either come to God in humility and fall on the stone and be broken, or we can do what God had to do with Samson, and that is have the stone fall on him and grind him to powder to recognize in our lives that we are absolutely bankrupt without God. We have nothing in our own strength. We have nothing in our own resources. All we have is God. All we have is Him. And we can either allow that truth so that we fall on the rock, which is Him, or we can let that rock fall on, on us. And you know what is amazing to me? Is that God in His infinite love will let all hell break loose in your life until you understand it. And He will let all hell break loose in my life too for me to understand it. 
And it's not God trying to pay us back for our sins. It's God in his infinite love doing whatever it takes to draw us back. You see, and what he does sometimes is that he will let us feel the full weight of our own poor decisions. So that relationship that's been drawing us away from God, it will end really poorly. And we'll say, God, how could you have allowed this to happen? That job that has been consuming us, we get laid off from. And we say, God, but how could you allow that to happen? That hobby that's been consuming everything, somehow it gets broken, it gets lost, somehow we can't do it anymore for whatever reason because something serious now begins to take up our time. We say, God, how could you allow this to happen? And he says, it's the only way I could get your attention. Because the jawbone that was supposed to be an instrument of mine, you've created into a god, into an idol. And see, the first commandment says, have no other gods before me. And I love you too much to let you worship something less than me. Can I tell you this? That Samson did not have to almost die of thirst. He could have made a choice to live a life of humility, live a life of brokenness before God, and realize that if we do anything or have anything in this life, that it is all a gift of God's grace. And sometimes in our lives, the problems and challenges that we face are needless, but they become necessary because God loves us so much. He loves us too much to let us walk away. And so he uses these things to get us back on track. But God actually uses something else to get us back on track. It's called communion. Where instead of us falling on the rock and being grinded to powder, we see Jesus, whom the Bible says was broken and bruised for us. That we can come freely to him now. And experience his grace and experience his love. And if we've drifted away, if we've set something up as an idol, then we can come to him and we can lay that down before him. And we can say, I've created Jawbone Heights, but here's what I want to do, God. I want to lay that down and I'm changing the name. I'm changing direction. And here's what I want to call it, the place, the spring of him who cried out. And maybe this place can be En Hakor, the spring, the place of those who cried out. See, I, I'm not sure where you are with God right now, but you know. And what I want to do for a moment, the band's going to come out in a second, and as they do, here, here's, I, I want to give us an opportunity to evaluate ourselves, to examine ourselves, to ask God to reveal what's in our heart and bring up those things that have been keeping us from fully walking with Him any jawbone, any idol that we've set up as a substitute for him. Because the Bible tells us this in the book of 2 Corinthians. It says, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Don't you realize that Jesus Christ is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? Let's pray together. And God, we want to thank you. We thank you for the fact that you just are the God who won't let go. You're the God who won't leave us as we are. But instead, you chase us even when we're running away from you. When we set up an idol, you won't allow us to worship something that's less than you. 
that we can't do. So we pray that you'd work in us in this very moment. God, we lay down whatever jawbone we've set as an idol before you. And we turn this place into En Hakor, the place, the spring of the ones who cried out. Listen, here's what I want to do for just a moment. Um, in a moment, I'm going to invite you to come forward, and you'll see the elements are here. You'll see there's some in the back, for those of you that are up in the, uh, the top parts. But here's what I want to do. I, I want you to um, understand what the Bible teaches about communion. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Bible says that we should not take communion in an unworthy manner. Because if we do... We're actually inviting judgment into our lives. We're drinking ju and eating judgment. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, can I just encourage you to do something? If you're not at a place yet where you say, I I've invited Jesus to be my Savior. He's my Lord. I'm walking with Him. He's forgiven me of my sins. If you're not at that place, that's okay. You're asking questions. You're here. You're doing, you're doing great. You're making progress. But if you haven't made that decision, I would invite you to not participate in communion because what, of what the scriptures say. This is a moment for Christians, a moment for believers. If you're here and you are a believer and you say, I, I am a Christian and I haven't been walking with God, then here's what I would encourage you to do. Examine yourself and say, God, I'm coming to you and I'm laying it down. I'm sorry I've walked away. And then you take hold of those elements. And if there's a promise you need to make, then make it. If there's a sin that you need to confess, then confess it. If there's an idol you need to lay down, and a jawbone that you've set up as your God, then you need to knock it down. Because perhaps God's been in the process of knocking it down for you. And God doesn't do this because he's trying to pay us back. He's doing it in his love because he's trying to bring us back. So we're going to come up in just a second and I want you to take the elements and just bring them back to your seat because we're going to partake of the elements together as the band plays. I invite you to come forward.
of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You see, we can do two things with the rock. We can let it fall on us or grind it to powder or we can fall on it and be broken. And Jesus has given us the option because he was the one that was broken for us. He's given us the model to follow that we might take up our cross and follow him. partake of the bread today. He goes on in verse 25 and he says, in the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. It's the Apostle Peter who employed the terms, he says, for you have not been redeemed with silver or gold or precious stones, but with the precious blood of Jesus. Blood that was shed on a cross. He was beaten, he was bruised, he was bloodied. And he says, I want you to know how much do I love you this much? As they pinned his hands down, as they nailed his hands down. This is a love so great. Partake of the cup today. And God, we thank you. And thanks doesn't seem like enough for the kind of love that you give us. As you sacrificed yourself for us, the only response to this kind of grace and this kind of love is to respond with the kind of sacrifice as we offer ourselves to you. So we do. Whatever idol we've set up, God, we tear it down. We say that you are our God and that we will follow you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Pastor John's going to share one thing with you before we go our way. God bless.